This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. It really wasn't necessarily that she won Miss America that was really intriguing me about this woman. It was all the things that she had to struggle through to find her voice, become Miss America, and sort of do and achieve the things that she kind of wanted and hoped for as a young girl growing up poor in the Bronx. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. My guest today is Linda Cass, an acclaimed author and owner of Gramercy Books, my favorite local indie bookstore here in Columbus, Ohio. In our conversation today, you'll meet the girl who loved languages and theater and was keen to build a career that would let her support herself. Linda walks me through the remarkable twists and turns her life has taken through stints working in medicine, teaching, journalism, and freelance writing. You'll also hear about how the combination of a family history writing project and a chance meeting on an outing with her book club ultimately moved her to becoming a novelist. Finally, we'll discuss what makes Columbus so special, the ultimate value of reading and writing, and why Linda was compelled to write her most recent book on Bess Meyerson, who she refers to as the most unlikely Miss America in 1945. I'm delighted to be with a friend and neighbor in the Columbus area, author Linda Cass. I've not read all of her books, but a couple that I have read have just been fabulous. And I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast, Linda. Oh, Kathy, I'm thrilled to be talking to you today. (laughs) And like many of my friends in Columbus that I know through civic events, you know, we see each other hither and yon and we're doing different things and we chat amiably for 22.4 seconds and then the event takes over. So it's wonderful to actually get a chance to have a real conversation with you. So you're a true born and bred Central Ohio gal. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Who And who was the young Linda Cass? What were you like at, I don't know, age five? Oh, gosh, and I'm trying to remember just because I have a, a big reunion, high school reunion coming up and, and a few of us who have been remaining in touch have asked these kinds of questions of ourselves, like trying to remember what happened then. And, you know, gosh, did we really live through 1968, 69, 70 in high school? And how did we feel about that? You know, stuff like that. I grew up in the east side of Columbus, 
attended the Columbus Public Schools. My claim to fame is that I went to high school with Archie Griffin. I keep telling him I'm a year older than he is. (laughs) Famous football figure in Columbus, Ohio. Two-time Heisman winner. I have to say that attending Eastmore High School, frankly, was quite a wonderful thing for, for me. And it was really a unique place, frankly, because it this is before there was any kind of busing, but I think there must have been voluntary busing going on because it was a very, it was an integrated multicultural space. And we experienced turmoil of the late 60s and early 70s together. And so many of us, we discovered through various reunions, were involved in social service, Very uh, many of us very much in social service and human services, uh, helping others. And just, it was kind of a an ecosystem we had there. And like volunteering at soup kitchens and things, what sort of social services? Just, well, just we all, we were, we were engaged in things that had to do with social justice, inequities. You know, all of us sort of are, no matter who we are and where we came, seem to be involved whether on a voluntary basis or as chosen in our professions to be social workers or, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, I started out as a journalist, you know, and, you know, there was something about that social service, social injustice that led me into that. So, so that, that was my beginnings was, it was in Columbus and I went to Eastmore. I ended up beginning college Indiana University in Bloomington. It was probably the only school I applied to because I had some relatives that were on sabbatical from Hebrew University in Israel, and they were biochemists, and their sabbatical my junior year was in Bloomington. And uh, we went to visit them, and I fell in love with this gorgeous campus in Brown County, Indiana, and that's where I wanted to go. So I went there for a couple of years, and Intending to do journalism? No, actually not. I my my intention was to get into physical medicine and actually at Indiana University to complete what I was planning to do, I would have had to go to the Indianapolis Medical Center. I would have had to go to Indianapolis. And I didn't really want to do that. So I ended up transferring. I applied and transferred to uh, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and continued with my same major. And yet I was very, very drawn to literature. I, I was taking Russian, li- Russian literature. I was working at this theater they had on campus, the Zellerbeck Theater for $2 an hour. It was all of these Joseph Papp productions that were going on to Lincoln Center's Vivian Beaumont Theater. And so I got to see 10 times, you know, A Doll's House with Leif Ullman, you know, and things like that. Like the proving ground for the launch into Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. And the Annenberg School of Communications, I was doing projects with them. So I was, I was really wanting to focus in this one area but but very much feeling the need to have a profession that i could get a job immediately after college and be self-supporting <laughs> so i did that actually and i most people don't know this about me but i actually graduated 
and and had I'm trying to think how many internships I had to have. It was in physical therapy, and I had three six week internships. Two of them were in New York City. One was in Washington D.C. at very prestigious institutes, and I ended up getting a job moving back to Columbus afterwards and getting a job at Dodd Hall, which is a rehab facility in town. In rehab, yes, and I was doing heavy rehab. And I was only, I think I was 22 when I, 21 when I graduated college. So I was a pretty young person and doing heavy rehab. So I was dealing with quadriplegia, paraplegia, multiple sclerosis. And after one year, I found it overwhelming for me. I couldn't, Hmm. it was very sad. I was living at 24 hours a day. An emotional drain. It was an emotional drain for me. And as much as I adored what I was doing, and I was a little person too, you know, it's it's physically taxing. Yeah. So I ended up continuing in physical therapy in an elderly facility, doing physical therapy while I put myself through graduate school at Ohio State. And it was in journalism where I got my master's because I wanted to write about medicine. So, so, so I. You've got this medical background and degree and you're a physical therapist. And just like that, OSU lets you into graduate school for journalism. And what kind of what kind of sales job did that take? No. Well, you know, I had very good grades and, you know, I applied and actually they had a they had a program at Ohio State at that time that was called medical communications. And Uh actually, that's what I applied to be in medical communications. And the advisor that they assigned me said, you have a medical understanding. You have no business being in medical communications. You want to write about medicine. So you should be in journalism. And so, you know, I did, I really wanted to write consumer journalism. I ended up- What does that mean? Well, you know, I I didn't want to write for medical journals. I wanted to write for the public, general public. You know, my North Star at that point was, there was a journalist at Newsweek, Matt Clark, who was their medical writer. And that's who I wanted to be. <laughs> so I'm curious. I want to reach back for a second to Eastmore and being in high school when the the, the civic unrest, the riots, the protests of the, the late civil rights era and the 1968 Democratic Convention, the shooting at Kent State. I remember those moments too. They were they were tumultuous. They, made, they were like, like January 6th on steroids over a number of months. And I remember at about the same age, thinking a couple of years older than you, frankly, wondering if if everything I knew was coming apart was that tumultuous and and frankly scary at that young mm-hmm. age. I'm wondering if if paying attention to the journalism and the writings at that time, do you think that in any way planted a seed about your interest in communication and writing? Or were you always a did you read a lot as a kid and, and enjoyed writing even as a kid? Where where's the through line on coming back to journalism? I mean, I think that I I was always curious and I was always a reader. You know, I was on the school yearbook. You know, for me, I'm not sure how it began. I think that the being part of of all that history being made then certainly was part of my growing up. It became part of my DNA in a way. I'm sort of a learner by nature, I guess you'd call me. You know, I'm always, I always like to learn. I mean, I'd be happy to go back to college now. <laughs> I'd be happy. You know, I did actually take some some workshops in, in at Ohio State when I was, I don't know, about 15 years ago, which got me started that really kind of turned things for me from being a journalist to being a novelist. But 
Yeah, I, I I am a learner. So so these events that happened then, which yes, a time of huge polarization like today. And sometimes when we think about where we are at the moment, you know, we sometimes forget or or some people haven't experienced what you and I have in what happened then. And so that probably was there in me. And I wanted to, you know, I just wanted to find out about other people. And journalism is certainly a way you 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 can have a license to ask people questions <laughs> and learn about them. Yeah. So I really liked that a lot. And and when I did start writing, and while I was at Ohio State in graduate school, I did immediately, through one of my magazine writing classes, connected with a senior editor at that time at Columbus Monthly. I think Columbus Monthly was only three years old at that time, and it was really did they did a lot of really big magazine pieces, ten thousand words, and they were you know I of course budding kid you know young young reporter graduate student you know of course I had an idea for a story for them and it turned out to be a cover story wow um, you know 6 months later it was about emergency rooms in in Columbus and you know of course I was interested in focusing specifically on on medicine so so that's what I did for a little while until I finished graduate school and I was married at that time first I had a first short marriage test, test marriage it's called <laughs> I ended up going with my then husband to Detroit. He was a television producer. And so with my clips and whatnot, I was able to make a pretty good uh, writing life for myself there. I was a, a stringer, a part-time correspondent for Time Magazine's Detroit Bureau. That's back when the national magazines actually had bureaus. Yeah, exactly. Actually had, had presence everywhere. Yes, yes. And so I, I did a lot of stories. At first, I did medical stories for them. But then, you know, they, they needed to use their part-time correspondence to do everything. And that's what branched me out. And I did everything from big education stores, contributed to cover stories on education, to going to Flint, Michigan, and getting to to write a story on the trend of male dancers. Okay. I mean, when a range wow. of things. Yes. <laughs> I had some really interesting experiences, and then I was also teaching. I was also teaching magazine writing at uh, at Wayne State at that time, and writing for a hospital newsletter. So I kind of patched several things together and had a, a full time job of writing and teaching then. But all freelance, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The writer's equivalent of today's gig economy, right? You're stringing together a lot of different assignments, but it gives you a lot of flexibility, which can be really helpful in managing a life and a marriage and a family. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, it was fairly regular too, even though they were all freelance. I mean, I was I was regularly doing this, the pieces for time and I had a schedule, you know, teaching court, magazine journalism at Wayne State. And this newsletter was, I was regularly the editor yeah. of the hospital newsletter. So I had some things that were dependable and it was, it worked out just fine. What kind of time frame are we talking here? Middle, late 70s? That would have been late 70s. That would have been, yeah, that would have been the late 70s, around 78, 79. Yeah. yeah. Where does the story go from there? How does Linda end up back in Columbus where you've been for oh, gosh, many years crazy. now? That's crazy. I mean, you know, I'm I'm one of these people, Kathy, that I just like to go where where things lead me. <laughs> and if I find something that's really interesting you know, I kind of pursue it, you know, and it's sort of 
this thing about, you know, an opportunity meets preparedness. I guess that's luck. Yeah. So while I was in Detroit, I had done a number of, oh, I was also writing for the Detroit Free Press Sunday Magazine. And I had done a big profile of pretty well-to-do guy who was the owner of the soccer team there, the Detroit Express. And these are the days when cable television franchising was suddenly coming to be, yeah. be multiple channels and, and whatnot. And sort of was like the internet today or AI at this point, Yeah, AI <laughs> you today. know, goes beyond internet, but it was, it was really uh, intriguing. And so was he getting, was he getting into that business? Well, he was, he was being pursued by what was then Warner Amex cable television. Got it. So Warner was, it was part of Warner Communications and American Express. Those two companies divorced years later and became Time Warner. Okay. But back then it was Warner Amex and and individuals came into town to franchise the Detroit suburbs. And what they did in doing so is they always looked for well-connected, high-level individual who they could partner with. And so they they went to this particular individual. His name was Sonny Van Arnhem. And they found this article, and it was written by me. And so they huh. contacted me, and I had lunch with them. And one thing led to another, and I ended up really intrigued with what they were doing, and they were intrigued with my ability to write and research. And they needed writers and researchers to help them develop their proposals so they could win the franchise in these areas. So I ended up joining their team, and then my then-husband got a job in New York, and so I was able to join the New York office of Warner Amex, but in their public affairs department because of my journalism background. So that's that's kind of where where I was for a while. And I worked in public affairs, which is kind of the opposite end of journalism. You know, I worked with trade and, and other reporters. I ended up getting recruited by Westinghouse Broadcasting, Group W, which has since bought CBS and is now all the companies I used to work for don't exist anymore. <laughs> but but Group W was a very had a great reputation as a public broadcaster on big issues. And I worked in their, I headed up their communications department and worked on a lot of different broadcasting campaigns that had to do with organ transplants, that had to do with AIDS, that all kinds of topics. And, you know, I loved my job. I loved what I was doing. And what brought me back to Columbus was I got married to my current husband and I moved back to Columbus because of him. And that was great because my parents still lived in Columbus and my sister was in Columbus and nieces and nephews. And it was great to be back with family. So that was 30, almost 36 years ago. Yeah. Well, in the mid eighties onward, Columbus has Prior to the 80s, it's a very agricultural state. Ohio is, and Columbus is the capital. It always had the university and things like that. But it's long considered itself to have been Cowtown, Columbus has. And I always thought they should have trademarked the Holstein cow black and white pattern and just run with that and have fun with it instead of being ashamed of it. But yeah. the community has really changed a lot since the late 80s and the mid-90s when I came here. It's it's hip and trendy, quite cosmopolitan, and really with a fabulous art scene. 
So oh. it's a great, great place to live. Exactly. I mean, it, and it really has such a young Columbus and I kind of is a little, in my mind, separate from Ohio. It's sort of really a its own thing. And it's a very young city now, too. Yeah. Very open and, and really friendly to young entrepreneurs, restaurateurs, the nonprofit leaders in town really get leadership latitudes and creative latitude. They're not micromanaged by boards or or big funders and, and too much of any degree. You got to put up with your friends on the West Coast and the East Coast steering a bit when they hear you're from Ohio. But if you get them out here to visit for a day or two, they're usually saying, oh, I get it now. And there's you know anywhere I could move to. <laughs> exactly. And frankly, a lot of people that moved to Columbus that are top CEOs that came to Columbus, maybe with, you know, not not exactly enthusiastically, you really have stayed in Columbus. Even after they've left their their positions, yeah. they just want to stay in Columbus. So yeah, it's kind of a hidden treasure. <laughs> yeah, very, very much. So you're back in Columbus and I don't know how quickly or slowly to go through this next phase because I'm really fascinated by what you've been doing in the last, what, five to 10 years of becoming a, a novelist, historical novelist. When did When did your historical novelist life begin? What was the trigger? The trigger was, it was sometime around 2007 or eight, maybe it was seven, 2007. I had a creative writing project I needed to do that was family oriented. My parents were going to be married for 60 years. And I, as a first generation American, had been sort of the family historian, also the fact that I was, you know, journalist training and whatnot. So I had interviewed both of my parents when I was in my late 20s on audio tape. Wow. And my sister had, my, I have an older sister, and she said to me, as we were approaching this milestone for my parents, she said, you know, I've got a lot of photographs. I can put some stuff, really cool things together. You have all those notes. You have all that information. Can't you do something with it? So I serendipitously at that time, just like within the month of this conversation that we had, I was a member of a book club. I'm a, I was, I'm an excessive reader. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so my book club was kind of going to hear a professor at Ohio State University who has since become a good friend, name is Lee Martin. He had a book called The Bright Forever that was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. And my book club was invited along with two other book clubs together where they hosted him. And so I went there. I remember I went to one of my daughter-in-laws and we, during the casual time, I found myself talking to him and saying, you know, I have a background as a journalist and I have this creative writing project and I have all these notes and I don't know what to do with them. And, you know, just we got on this conversation and he said, well, why don't you audit my create nonfiction creative writing graduate, you know, class at Ohio State? And I said, wow, can I really? Wow. So I did that. I think that was in 2008. And I loved it. And then he said, look, why don't you take my graduate class work, my graduate workshop in creative nonfiction. And so it's not novel. Creative nonfiction in a way was using novel techniques to tell true stories. Okay. So using the techniques of dialogue, of settings, of, of description, using these kinds of fictional tools, but telling a story this way, uh, you know, with voice and whatnot. 
So I, I took his creative nonfiction graduate workshop. There were 12 people in the class. I was definitely the oldest person in the class. This is in 2008 even. And I figured out a way to put this story of my parents in, in a form that was interest, really interesting and actually was eye-opening to me because I put them side by side during the same time period and see they were from different countries and had very different experiences during World War II. Which countries? My father was from Vienna. He came to this country when he was 15 years old in 1938. So he got out before the... He got out stuff. right before, right before. He was very lucky. They got an affidavit. I mean, it was a miracle, frankly. And he ended up going to Central High School. He moved his family after living a few months in New York. They chose Columbus. They came to Columbus. He went to Central High School. He went to Ohio State. And then he, he was recruited in, by the Army. And he found himself after brief stint in Colorado as part of the ski patrol, he found himself over in the training camp at Camp Ritchie, Maryland, where he became a military intelligence officer and a Ritchie boy. So that was my father's trajectory. My mother's trajectory was equally different and fascinating. She lived in Eastern Poland that's now Ukraine. It was the part of Poland that was controlled by the Russians during the first two years after Poland was invaded by Germany. So from 39, September of 39 to 41, she lived under Soviet control until Germany attacked Russia. So she did not live in a concert. She was not in a concentration camp, rather a Catholic family that was close to her family, built a bunker for her and several family members. And they lived underground for a year. So she came to this country in 1947 and found herself in Columbus. And she met my my father in Columbus, and that's where they got married. You know, because of what we're all witnessing happening in Ukraine right now, unpack for me a little bit more. We know Poland as a certain border today on the map, and Ukraine as a separate territory that's independent or Russian, depending which side of the argument you come down on. But the Germans pushed through Poland and into what we now call Ukraine from the West. Is that right? And the well, Soviet the Soviets tried to counter them from the East? Yes. Yes. So in September of 1939, the Germans attacked Poland. And within a couple of weeks, Hitler and Stalin made a pact. Ah. And so he you know, they basically gave this strip of Eastern Poland to Stalin. Hitler knew he wasn't, you know, he was, he was not, he was going to attack. Yeah. He was just putting it off for a while. He was putting it off. And so, so the Soviets controlled this sliver of land that is now part of Ukraine. You know, Poland is, it's more, it's boundaries and borders has, they've been taken over by everyone and anyone for centuries. So, this was just another, you know, this portion was Poland back when my mother grew up there, but, and she lived in a small village of maybe 3000 people. And now is kind of part of that border that is, that is part of Ukraine today. So Catholic family helps out several Jewish families and allows them to hide in a bunker for a year. And then did that, so that lasted until the peace accord was struck? 
let them get out. And, and if they got out, weren't they back under Soviet control? Or? Well, the Soviets became our allies, you know, right. So then, so the Soviets were pushing the Germans, they were pushing them West. So they finally liberated her village. It's it's interesting, Kathy. I used to think that the war was just over at a certain date, but that isn't how it happened. It was when village by village got liberated. So her particular village being on the eastern border of Poland was liberated earlier. So her village was, was liberated in probably late 1944, perhaps. My date's right. You know, even though we know that you know, we consider the European theater of war to have ended in May of 45 or something. I think that's a date. So her village, when her village was liberated, she was able to go, to go back. So the story of your, your father making his way from Vienna to the United States and to Columbus and your mother, he gets out on the front end of the war and your mother on the back end finally is liberated and makes her way to Columbus where they meet and they marry. And how did that, that came together to be your first, quote, historical, not creative nonfiction, right? Tasso's song? Yeah, I, well, no, actually, the creative nonfiction was just something that was a personal memento memoir for my family, made only for my family. And it wasn't, but, but that experience got me into creative writing. So Lee Martin, who was that scholar I met, he said to me, you know, Linda, you might want to stay with nonfiction. But I really recommend that you take my fiction writing workshop because it'll make your nonfiction better. So I took a workshop with 12 people that was on fiction writing. And I really loved the experience. And I ended up kind of getting hooked on it because of that. So I started working on some short stories and had been coming all along and doing this. And then my daughter, who was in college at NYU, her sophomore, beginning of her sophomore year, she spent the semester in Berlin. And there was a, a fall break of 10 days. So my husband and I went to visit her and she wanted to go and visit Vienna and Poland. So we went to Vienna and we went to Poland. I didn't go to where my mother was from, but you know, I was far enough. We, we went to Krakow, really and visited Auschwitz and just being in the environment, these environments moved me. And I came back and I really couldn't continue to work on what I was working on. I was kind of working on a short story collection. I just couldn't, I couldn't even touch it. I, I could not take these stories out of my mind, stories that I had heard growing up, particularly through my mother, because my mother was much more open about her experience. So I decided to explore her story in a fictional way. Fictional because I wasn't there. It's not my experience. And to tell a real human story is sometimes more truthful and more effective than coming up with just a fact by fact you know, that, biography. That's what you get too often in school. It's just dry facts and there's nothing living. There's nothing emotive about it. There's nothing that pulls you into it. And I think every person I know, what, however bookish or schoolish they were as a youngster, when you're living now and seeing events happen or you stumble on a like Tasso's song that tells you what that time was about in a different way, the common line is, why didn't they teach us this in history? Why didn't they teach us history this way? So we right. had some more 
some more vivid understanding of of the making of history and of the experience of being alive when big events are happening, you know, as they are now. Exactly, exactly. And I was really wanting to understand how does someone survive was on my mind really was here I grow up and, you know, I had a normal, I had a high school experience, even though there was a lot of turmoil going on, but my life was regular. I was not experiencing war directly. And here I knew stories that my mother had told me about her life and how most everyone she went to school with didn't survive and and how she lived underground i'm trying to understand what was that what did that look like and and even you know a story that i included in tasa's song at least the truth of it being that she was separated from her mother for 5 years her mother was taken by russians in a siberian work camp and that they were actually reunited it's shocking it's a miracle and you know just i just really questioned how does someone psychologically even survive this kind of experience so i wanted to explore it and and one way that i i sort of did just this is part of my own love of music but i made the protagonist who is based on my mother but not my mother a violin prodigy because i figured music would get her through. And I made her, you know, a violinist because you could carry around a violin from place to place. So music really kind of threaded through Toss's song. And, you know, I did take the touch points that were true, but in the process of writing, Tassa became her own person, not my mother. And, you know, and I just took her story from child at 10 to a young woman on a boat coming to this country. Yeah. So I learned a lot about not necessarily my mother's exact experience, but I did learn a lot about what that had to have been like, because I did have to do a lot of research. I was just going to ask you, so you've got the insights and stories from your mother. You've got the experience of being on the ground in Vienna and in Poland and getting that really vivid sense of place and feeling and culture. What was the rest of the research that you did and needed to do? And and what were the sources that helped you fill all that in and create that full tableau of what became the story? Well, everything concrete to create that authenticity, whether it was the clothes people wore, the food they ate, the books they read, that all came from research and, and, you know, just better understanding how radios became important to them, getting information. Do you find that kind of insight in books or do you go through newspaper clippings and look at, you know, newspapers are a good window on a place and a time, what's for sale and what are locals talking about? Everything from from newspapers to books to movies. And understand also that I approached this, it's not like I was naive to World War II, just because both my parents had experienced what they had, I was always sort of a student of World War II. I was always fascinated and had read books about World War II. And so I had like a lot of things already Mm. just, you know, inside of me. Then I did a lot more research. You don't want to get too carried away with research because then you never create the right (laughs) and create the characters and the scenes, you know, but I made sure the journalist in me made sure that that the facts of that time period were absolutely authentic. Yeah. I know when I was writing 
my Hubble book, for example, more of reductionist scientist engineer mindset. I'm too prone to strip things down to just, we did this, we did this, we did this, we did this. And one bit of advice several other writer friends gave me was, as they read the draft, was tell me about the carpet in the room. You know, just get real about the texture of that moment so people can imagine themselves. They can't imagine themselves doing the thing you did, but they can imagine the smell of chlorine around the pool where you're training and the, the sounds and the noise. That's that's human experience they can kind of connect with. And then they feel more in the moment with you and understanding what you were going through, even though they don't understand anything about a spacesuit. And I think that's kind of what you're saying, to tell the reader enough about place and time and smell and texture that it becomes very real to them. Yes. And what also then, then they don't doubt where they are, you know, and that it is in that time period. But then the other really important thing is to really inhabit the character so that I totally was inside that character. And I, you know, when I was in the middle of writing it, I could imagine what that character would think, would feel, would do in a scene, how she would relate to other circumstances, you know, you sort of walk in their shoes. Yeah. And that really also, that becomes the inventiveness on the page of fiction. But then it's it's grounded in all of that authentic, true history that's yeah. underneath. And do, do you have to inhabit to some degree each one of the characters in the book? Or if you get really into Tassa, does that, her light, it's through her eyes. We don't. We can only fully inhabit ourselves as we go through life, right? We encounter other people and learn a bit about them, but we're the only one we fully inhabit. So how did you work that with dealing with other characters in the book so they're not just cutouts or mannequins? You do have to inhabit all the characters, frankly, even though they may not be your point of view characters. So I chose to tell really Tasa's story in a close third person so that it meant that Anything she saw, you know, she didn't see it. It couldn't be communicated because it was it was really so close. It was almost as close as being in an eye first person. Mm. But it gives you an advantage being in third person where there there still is a little bit of distance. So so a very nearby observer. Yeah. That sort of experiencing the whole thing themselves and saying, but Tasa, but Tasa surprised me and did X. They're seeing her do things. Yeah, yeah. But it's really Tassa thinks, Tassa sees. Oh, I see. Okay. Feels, you know, Tassa tastes. So it's it's what she experiences yeah. directly. But it's not I, Tassa. It's Tassa thinks. Yes. You know? It's okay. not I think, which is the difference. But, yeah. but it's still very close to inhabiting her and her experience. And so that's how I how I told Tasa's song. But there were other characters who were in scenes with her, her parents and and friends. And, you know, so I did, you know, through the dialogue, you know, I tried to understand them too. But again, I didn't understand them as well, perhaps, as them being more minor as I did her, you know, the closer, the more people were on the page, the more I yeah. was. So, <laughs> yeah. 
You know, I earlier this week, I had a similar conversation with actress Jan Alexander. She has played more than 100 roles over a really rich and vast you know, stage, big screen, TV screen career, quite remarkable voiceovers and things in addition. And your description of what it took you to inhabit Tassa and be authentic in her relating her experience strikes me as very parallel to what Jane said about how she what does she do to get into a character? And it's not it's not a very didactic kind of studying as much as it's it's absorbing. It's absorbing place and time and the script, yes. I mean, you're performing a script. They're not fabricating the characters themselves. But to really make it alive, you have, she had to do very much the same sort of thing that you're talking about. Well, that's a very perceptive observation because there are writers who, you know, I wish I would take acting classes because there are writers that say their writing gets better when they take an acting class. Interesting. Because there is this similar kind of inhabiting of things, of of, of, of situations. Yeah. Now. So you've got another book coming out. I have the privilege of having an advanced copy, which I've only just started. I'm going to finish it on my travels next week about Bess Meyerson, who I'm of an age enough to have known Bess Meyerson as once upon a time, Miss America, and a, after that, a fairly common TV commentator, you know, Rose Parade hostess, many, many, many roles. How did you decide that that was a tellable story? And I guess this gets to another one of those questions. Of all the stories we all have around us, can you tell me what it is? What's that first hint that grabs you, that tells you there there is a story there worth telling more broadly? There's a string... I should pull because it never occurred to me to pull the string on Bess Meyerson. Yeah. For me, I was just finishing a Ritchie boy and I'm steeped in World War II. I understand those dates back and forth. And of course, I knew who Bess Meyerson was. And in fact, I, I lived in New York in the 80s and she was actually very prominent in New York politics. She rose quite highly in New York politics. But so I was, it was, it was probably February of 2020. I read some article, I saw some article that mentioned something about Miss America pageant, and they mentioned Bess Meyerson, and they mentioned in the sentence the date she won Miss America, which was September 8th, 1945. Whoa. So when I read that, I went, wait a minute. That's six days after the official end of World War II. And I understood the context of the world at that time. And I'm thinking, this woman is Jewish. How the heck did she become Miss America then? You know, yeah. it just the whole thing really, again, my curiosity. I wasn't committed to writing any book. <laughs> I thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go get a biography. I'm going to the library and seeing what I can find out about this woman, because this is kind of interesting to me suddenly. So I got three different biographies and I learned a whole lot about this young girl growing up. And I actually, my other two books are the same. I'm really interested in that coming of age of people. I'm interested in the you know, kind of how their moral and psychological development, you know, the underpinnings that, you know, kind of gets them to early adulthood. You know, I, that's the area that seems to be right now. That's just kind of where I can find myself. That's what I'm interested in. That's what I'm curious about. So I uh, was most 
interested when I started reading about her, her background was absolutely, I had no idea. I had no idea she grew up poor in the Bronx, that her parents were Russian immigrants, that she was a talented piano prodigy, that she attended LaGuardia's famous high school of music and art. There was a public high school, kind of like Fort Hayes High School is in Columbus, right? And here she attended this school. She was accepted there. Students from the five boroughs, very hard to get in there. And she was accepted. And she ended up, you had to learn a second instrument. So she learned to play the flute as well. And in the Miss America contest, you know, by the the way, (laughs) yes, she played the piano and she played the flute. Wow. You know, so it really wasn't necessarily that she won Miss America that was really intriguing me about this woman. It was all the things that she had to struggle through to find her voice, become Miss America, and sort of do and achieve the things that she kind of wanted and hoped for as a young girl growing up poor in the Bronx. And and so I just deal with her from 1936 to 1946. When she, I start when she was 12, the reason being that she was at her adult height of almost six feet when she was 12 years old. Now, you can imagine almost six foot 12 year old does not feel very pretty or very attractive. In fact, she thought of herself as an, a gawky, awkward, ugly duckling. And, yeah. And so this is who she was. And, and you so know, how she, do you become that best Meyerson that we know? Publicly? Yeah. 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 And she was never, and understand also in her culture, she lived in the one of the first cooperative apartments in the Bronx called Sholem Alechem. And her community, all these immigrants that she was around growing up, beauty was not one of the top things you check off. It was achievement. It was music. It was art. And those were the things that were important. So she was the most unlikely Miss America ever. Can't um, wait to read it. Yeah. So so that's what that's what became appealing to me because, you know, here I grew up with immigrant parents. I understand being different, being sort of an outlier a little bit. And I was intrigued by her and I wanted to take I wanted to inhabit that woman and see what happened. <laughs> I love it. Well we're we're coming close to time. I've just loved I go on for hours more. I'm curious about one other thing though with The role that writing has played in your life and the very many ways that you've pursued it from true journalism to creative nonfiction and the historical stories, semi-historical stories you're writing now, what would you say to young students and to teachers and parents about kids in elementary through high school? What, What role should writing play? Why should writing play a prominent role in those formative years and or in college years? I think, uh, well, first off, I think reading, students should be encouraged to read whatever, whatever they want to read. I mean, seriously, you know, if it's a comic book, it should be, they should be reading a comic book. Just read. Just read. Because you read and you, when you enjoy that experience, you want to read more. And you read, you learn more. And when you learn, you can, you know, be more of a empathetic human being that understands the world around you and understands yourself better. And writing also is so wonderful, no matter what profession you're in, because, you know, it allows you to express yourself. 
and express your experiences. And whether it's just expressing it, you know, in a letter to your mother or your daughter or your friend, it's a great skill that that unfortunately people don't value as much today. And I think that the arts, the humanities, reading, writing are just essential. You know, my, my father was an engineer. I trained as a scientist and you know, NASA turned me into a quasi-engineer. I remember my father when we were very young saying, it doesn't matter if you're the smartest thing on two feet in all of North America. If you cannot express your ideas clearly, they won't ever matter. Clearly enough that someone else can carry on something you care about or clear enough that someone is impelled to join you in a cause or whatever yeah. that is. But mm -hmm. it's almost, it was almost was saying, if, if you value yourself and your ideas at all, you should invest in learning to express yourself well, speaking, writing, whatever. And he, def he definitely agreed, and I would certainly agree that you know, voracious reading is one of the best precursors to some good writing. If you feel moved by a piece of writing, something about that phrasing it sticks with you and it, it guides you to find a compelling way to express what, what moves you to other people. Well said. And, and you know, we're we're not we we don't witness everything and and we need more witnesses we need to remember things and writing helps people yeah. remember and it helps ensure that we get multiple perspectives mm -hmm. on anything we've experienced yeah i i wrote my hubble book back in 2017 and 18 and in the course of writing it something that amazed and shocked me is i realized how little of the world i was in i actually saw and understood and I likened it to being, pick any sporting game you want to watch and imagine yourself being outside the fence, having only a little peephole to look through. And you you see through that little peephole, that's the game you see. But people are up in the bleachers or up in the press box or down in the dugout or whatever. They're seeing the same game in a very different way. That thought occurred to me. And then a book just came out called The New Guys, were done by a writer that talked to many people in my astronaut class and many of the executives that surrounded our group. And now it was like seeing the life I lived through 45 different viewpoints. And it all looked so different to every single one of them, but it was it was the same story. So there's real value to getting many of those stories out, even about a point or a place or a time that everyone thinks they know really well. They just know what they got through their people. Right, right, exactly. Well, I thank you for the advanced copy of Bessie. I was feeling very impatient about having to wait for the formal release date. And I do hope you're going to continue writing for many, many, many more years to come because I love the way you tell stories. Oh, well, thank you so much, Kathy. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you having me on your program. And I really enjoyed our hour together. We'll do more of it. See you at Bexley Library somewhere down the road. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.